All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. How many of you have the flu? Don't raise your hand, that was a joke. <laughs> My name is Michael Feeling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church, and uh, we're in a series in Genesis 1 through 11. So if you open up your Bibles to the passage Amanda just read, it's Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 is where we're going to start. And uh, as, as I look back on my life, some of you think I'm ancient and some of you think I'm really young, but as I look back on my 37-year-old life, I've often asked, God, why did you chart this course for my life? Um, there are a whole bunch of decisions that were made for me and about me that have kind of converged together to create at least this story of my life. And your life is exactly the same. You can step back and say, God, um, why, why did you plot out this course for my life. And I want to share with you two kinds of decisions that are basically made about you. Number one, they're decisions that are made for you that you cannot unchoose. You're stuck with these decisions for the rest of your life. Uh, these were decisions made for you. Like here are a few for myself. Um, the date of my birth. God could have chosen any day, any moment, any minute throughout millennia, but he chose May 31st at 1152 AM, 1980, in that space time in history, for me to be born into this world. I didn't choose that. I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose my physical abilities, capabilities, or disabilities. I didn't get to choose any of that. All of those were given to me, um, in a sense, mandated for me, and I could not unchoose them. My body type, right? Some of you love your body type. Some of you hate your body type. Well, take that up with the Lord. Your heart language. You didn't, you didn't choose the language that your parents spoke in your home, that first language that you learned, your skin color. How much of your life would be so drastically different if you were black, white, dark, whatever, you name it. I mean, just imagine how much of your life is shaped simply by that reality. Your siblings in birth order. I'm the youngest of four brothers. I often think if I had a sister, how absolutely different my life would be. Uh, it would be catastrophic. Now we all know the youngest, <laughs> the youngest brother is the best, right? Um, right? Right? The youngest, no, all the old, <laughs> I've polarized 80% of you in this room right now. Um, my personality, this is what I, I, I often think of when I think of my life, because my personality, for example, on the disc profile, I'm a really high I, maybe a medium D, and no S or C. If you know what that means, great. Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENTP, okay? Uh, Enneagram number seven, I love to party, right? So like, you just think about all of these realities of my life. I know there's a few of you, like John Tuck and Brian Rhodes and myself, are basically the same human being. It's really scary. But all of these, all of these things kind of converge together and they make up myself. I didn't choose this. Like, I didn't wake up and say, I want to be an extrovert. Uh, you didn't wake up and say, I want to be an introvert. Like These were decisions that were made for you and never once did God get your consent, did he? Was he at all concerned with your opinion on whether or not you would go bald at the age of 21? And of course the answer is... No, he was actually up to something bigger, and this is what I find very interesting about my life, is that so much of my life and what I know, uh, I did not choose. It was chosen for me. There's another category of things. These are directions that were determined for my life that I can either choose to follow or do not follow. So for example, when you read scripture, here's what you find, that the Lord is um, pretty clear that your life is not an accident and he has a direction and a trajectory that he desires you to go. Um, the idea that you get to choose what you want to be when you grow up, on the one hand, sense is real, uh, but you have to also understand that God has designed us for something very specifically for each season of our life. And so um, I've often wondered, like, how did I end up in ministry as a pastor? Like, I didn't grow up, I wasn't the godly kid. I wasn't like that kid. I mean, 
I was a Christian, but I, I, didn't, I didn't stick out. All of my friends who went to my church, all of them wanted to be pastors and missionaries. I was the only one who's like, I want to be a musician. That's all I ever really want to do with my life is play music. And so uh, the fact that I even ended up in ministry to me is a weird thing. In fact, uh, two weeks ago, the barista at Starbucks, um, there's like this line behind me. And she says to me, um, uh, it was really curious the way she asked it. She said, why did you want to become a pastor? And my gut reaction to her was, I did not want to become a pastor. <laughs> like, and it just came out of my mouth, you know? Like, that wasn't like my plan, you know? And, and, uh, and in fact, I mean, there's a longer story, but like I went to bed my freshman year in college and I was like, God, I need a job. And I fell asleep praying. And I woke up to a phone call from a pastor who said, do you want to come down to Missouri? I talked to a guy, I talked to a guy, I talked to a guy. I said, I should talk to you. And I'm like, huh, strange. And it was, it was like God just dropped me into this thing. And I went down there having no idea how to do anything. And uh, I got to the end of that summer and I'm like, I don't think I have an option. Like, you know those crossroads in your life where if you don't do it, you know God is gonna make your life pretty hard? Anybody feel like that? It's almost like he has a predetermined plan for your life. And if you don't follow the plan when he makes it clear to you, like it's gonna be a little bit more difficult than you want. And that's what ministry was like for me. And as I got into it, as I started learning, I started to love it. But I've shared with you, I had a petrifying, like debilitating fear of speaking in public till I was like 27 years old. And it was really embarrassing. I'm like, God, why are you calling me to something that I don't feel equipped for? I can't get in front of a group of people without my voice quivering and sweating through my entire shirt. I can't tell you how many shirts I had to go through because I sweat through them all. It was embarrassing. And like when you sit, none of you, very few, like three of you want to be here right now where I am, right? Right. And most people don't choose this path, this direct. I mean, there's some, but for the most part, God kind of plucks you out and says, look, you're not better than the rest of people, but I'm going to, I'm going to form something in you. I'm going to, I'm going to guide you in this direction. And I've often asked God, why, why this place? Why, why this route? Um, so many decisions were made for me, so many decisions were made about me, so many decisions uh, that people made about themselves that massively transformed my life, and I'm left with one conclusion, and it's this. God has a very particular plan for my life. It is very specific. He is not arbitrary. He is not random. He has allowed me at times to resist this plan, and my life has suffered for it. And, uh, but here's the big picture. I had no say in that plan. He didn't consult me. He did not get my consent. And honestly, I don't even think God is concerned with whether or not I like his plan, which grinds my American sensibilities. I choose my destiny. I am the master of my own life. Now, whether or not you realize it, right, um, that is in your blood because you grow up in this country because it's part of the cultural ethos. And here's what we find in our life and in scripture, God is making decisions and he is allowing paths to happen that don't always make sense. They are not what we want. And we just get this sense that he is up to something really, really big. So in Genesis, um, we're going we're gonna to see this, that God is indeed up to something really big. And you are a major part of that. I don't want you to get this wrong. Like, you're important, okay? I'm important. Like, we're important. We're made in the image of God. We've already established this. But I need you to get something, and I think this is gonna be probably one of the hardest things for you to get as you try to share the gospel with your children and your neighbors, um, as they start to uncover why God made them. There's this part of us that wants it all to be about me. The most important person in God's eyes is me. I am the center of his universe. We pray like it, we think like it, we live like it, right? 
But then you get to this like very interesting realization where you, you come to the conclusion, this is actually not about me and God has actually made me to be a part of something bigger than me and I am not the most important thing in this world. That's actually really hard for people to come to grips with. God is up to something bigger than me and I've been designed to participate and I can participate. But if I choose to not participate in whatever his plans are, you know the results. The results are going to be death. Uh, it may be physical inevitably, but it could be spiritual, emotional, psychological, relational. You start to watch as you stray from the path that the Lord has for you. And then here's what's also interesting. When you walk down the path of death, who also gets hurt in the process? Everyone you love, right? And then you step back and say, well, God, you could have stopped them, but you didn't. I mean, there, there's a a whole level of quandary and frustration that the book of Genesis is going to bring up because what you're going to find is that these same questions about your life, you're going to realize that God has designed Adam and Eve also in the same way. And you're going to see that God has a plan and he is implementing this plan. And honestly, I'm going to be really straight with you on the front end. Um, some of the conclusions that we come to are going to be really hard for some of you to swallow. Um, but one, one of the things that just have a high value of this is when we teach scripture, I, I don't want to avoid hard issues. I don't want to like avoid hard questions. I want to put them on the table as directly, I think, as sometimes our subconscious and our gut feels them. I want to verbalize them. I want to give you permission to say them. And I want to just figure out how to face them together on our own. So again, turn with me, Genesis chapter two, verse four. We're watching God's plan unfold. And point number one in your notes says, zoom. Uh, now, we're gonna zoom in for a moment. In, in this first section, um, one of the things that I need to do for you is I need to help you dismantle a cultural lie. So there is this uh, cultural mantra, whether you realize it or not, that has been implanted into your brain, my brain as well, okay? And the cultural mantra goes like this. The Bible is full of contradictions. Now, what's interesting is people will just spew this thing out and they've never, ever read the Bible, right? It's just the very natural thing they say. It's just their gut reaction. So here's a really like, common conversation um, that if you're going to talk about creation with somebody, this has probably come up in my life 10, 12 times, but I'm just randomly guessing. Um, it goes like this. Okay, um, Michael, the Bible's full of contradictions. And then I say to them, okay, like what? And there's one of like three major places people will go, but the primary one they'll say is this. Creation. There's two creation accounts. And almost all the time, I'll ask them, have you read them? Well, no, but I learned about it in a book or in class or whatever. And I'm like, look, you haven't even read this stuff. Like, what, why are you telling me? Like, go read it. Go take your time and study it. Go think about this. And most have never read this, and most are just regurgitating cultural mantras. But as a church, what I've learned is that so many of our questions are these mantras, these questions that have been implanted inside of us by the evil one and culture, and honestly, sometimes good-intentioned people to create doubt over the word of God, which is really the plan of Satan. Doubt, the veracity, the truthfulness, the accuracy of God's word. And so we got to call out these cultural mantras and make sure we face them. This mantra about creation, by the way, it assumes two things. If there's two contradictory creation accounts, number one, it assumes Moses was not very smart. It assumes that when Moses uh, penned this, or some people would say organized these accounts, however you want to put it together, is when Moses penned this, that Moses didn't realize that Genesis 1 was a complete contradiction to Genesis 2. Like, did this just like pass over Moses' head? Moses was incredibly intelligent. In fact, there's a, another like subconscious lie that we have when we read the Bible. Sometimes that we think people who lived a long time ago were really not smart. 
like we somehow are really smart and all the rest of them don't have like the ability to be logical and to be intelligent and to aggregate information and to come to good conclusions. And so what we find here is number one is if you're gonna say these contradict, you can say number one, Moses isn't that smart. But number two, you're gonna also say that Jesus isn't that smart. Because when Jesus talks about the creation account, he merges the first creation account in Genesis 1 with the second one, and he tells them it's the same story. For Jesus, there's actually not two separate creation accounts. It's one story, and he's telling the story when he tells it, and he connects them together. And so there's some interesting implications to be able to say that these uh, um, uh, creation accounts contradict each other. And I want to just help you see this. I want to help you just see how logical they are, and we're going to help you understand big picture what God is up to, and we're going to see some plans unfold. So let's compare. Genesis 1.1, Genesis 2.4. And um, here's what I want you to see here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you, if you go back, we had the stars, the sun, the moon, the earth, the oceans, the land, the fish. God is zooming in. This is what's happening. He starts off with the stars, and he just zooms all the way in, and he finally gets to man, okay? So in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter 1, uh, and, and it talks about how God created these things from big to little, culminates with man on the sixth day of creation. Now we get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and uh, the first seven, the seven days of creation count, that, that, that account is done. And he's going to shift gears, and here's what he's going to do. I'll tell you what he does. He zooms in even closer. Uh, he's going to take day six, and he's going to zoom in on day six, and he's going to elaborate on what's happening in day six. And so Genesis 2-4, this way, it's clearly a new section of scripture, um, but it's going to be addressing, again, as you said, day six. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Do you see the similarity to the first creation account in Genesis 1-1? The answer is... Yes, you have eyes and you can read, you can see this. Um, when they were created, in the day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I want you to notice two very big things here. Number one, I want you to notice word order. And so we have heavens and earth, heavens and earth, and then what happens? Earth and then heavens. Okay, so we're Americans, we speak English for the most part, we might have other heart languages, but if you're in this room and you can hear me, English is a common denominator for us. I want you to catch this, the English language structures itself very different than the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language communicates not just in content, but in nuance. It communicates not just in content, but in word order. And so one of my challenges as a teacher is to help draw out some of these nuances. It is a very beautiful, beautiful language. And when changes like this are made, they're usually done on purpose to tell you what's gonna happen. And so the earth is gonna become the central focus here, but it's gonna continue to zoom in. Here's the second thing I want you to notice is the word choice. And the word choice in the first uh, creation account is God created, and then it's regurgitated again in 2.4, and this word means to create out of nothing. Um, previously, something did not exist, and now it exists. But when we get to the story of what happens in Genesis chapter 2, he's going to talk about God making the earth. This is about forming. This is about taking what is already there and shaping it and forming it. And so we find is that God is zooming in on day six and he's gonna talk about the formation of man. And again, we're gonna deal with part of this today and then part of this next week. Now, verses five to seven, 
big picture, they're gonna do two things for you, the reader. They're gonna tell you when this is happening, and it's gonna tell you where it's happening. So let's look at when. Uh, verse five uh, tells us basically this, that before man started gardening and cultivating, that's when this happened, okay? Um, in fact, we're gonna realize this is day six, but here's what he says. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up and there was no man to work the garden. So here's what we find in the Genesis one account. The Hebrew word for the vegetation is that it's like baby vegetation. And what we find is that it's yet to be cultivated. The man has not yet come into it to make it follow his will and to make it do what he wants. And so what he's saying here is, okay, before cultivation happening, before gardening happened, uh, and then we get to the second one, which is before the flood. So what, what Moses is doing for you is he's placing the events of this in history for you. And here's what he says, before the flood, before the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. If you read a couple chapters later in Genesis, you see that the concept of rain came after the flood. Before that, God fed the world through a mist and through streams underground. And says a mist was going up from the land, it was watering the face of the ground. And so what's happening right now is that Moses is setting the stage because God is gonna zoom in, he's gonna talk about something really specific. It also tells us where this is happening. This is not happening somewhere random, but somewhere specific. It's not happening everywhere, it's happening somewhere. And so we get to verse five, and I want you to notice some of these nouns that we highlight for you. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God and not caused it to rain on the land. For there is no man to work the ground, which is Adama, and the word for man is Adam. Do you get there's going to be some connections here as we draw this out? And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so here, here's what you start seeing. God is zooming in from the universe to the earth, to the land, to the field, to the garden, to the ground, and ultimately from that ground is going to come Man, do you see the zoom in? And what's gonna become central now in this discussion? What's gonna become central is the forming, the fashioning, the location, the experience of the man, Adam, taken from Adama. Verse seven says this. Then the Lord God formed the man, formed Adam from the dust of the Adama and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I love this. And the man became a living creature. Uh, you need to catch this because um, this is intimate. This is way bigger than just cosmic uh, divine CPR. God is giving his very life source to this human. Um, he is set apart from all of creation. I mean, it's interesting because all of the creation, God makes a multiplicity of them. But man is the only one where the first ones are personally designed and fashioned and given in their life the very life of God. Life is sacred. I want you to catch this because it's God's. Now this, this, is, a, this is a hard reality. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you understand this. Uh, it's God's to give. It's God's to take. Period. No one else. God owns this. God can do with us whatever he wants. And, and as this passage unfolds, these are gonna be really important concepts, not for you just to get in your head, but to love in your heart. God can do anything he wants with your body and your life. You get to the book of Revelation, we even find this, that God created some people that they would be executed for their faith. That God determined 
their death and how many people would die like this? I mean, how many of you would object if God said, uh, I made a decision for your life and it said you were gonna be burned alive for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ, by fire? You would say, I object. And he's not concerned. He's not concerned with your objections to his will. Do you see that? If he was concerned about every objection to his will, let me tell you, like there would be a line seven and a half billion people strong saying, God, we've got some major issues with what you have allowed, ordained, or permitted. I'm telling you that this is one of the most difficult things to come to grips with. As a believer, as a follower of God, that you are not the point. God doesn't ask our permission, and he will do whatever he wants, particularly when it comes to our bodies. And when, when, when the scriptures talk about our life, it's clear that our life, our days, are numbered. That even God himself, because he has authority and jurisdiction over your very breath and your life because he gave it, it's his to give, it's his to take. That even the days of your life are numbered. Isn't that, that if you just let that sink in, that is concerning. That's hard. Because nobody wants to die and yet injected into the very, we'll say, reality of your existence is your death. If there were a clock over your head and it was counting down, it would count down how many days and minutes and seconds because the Lord knows that. Now what's interesting is that uh, it might make us feel better to say the Lord knows and that's why it is. The scriptures actually don't communicate it like that. The scriptures communicate that it's more the Lord knows because the Lord planned. And this is some really hard stuff to come to grips with, but this is where you start getting into the, meat, the nitty-gritty of some of this stuff. Man has ownership of the entire world. God gave it to him. I mean, some of you would say stewardship, but from Adam's perspective, he's, he, this is his territory, but God has ownership over man. Man can do what he wants with the world, but God can do whatever he wants with man. Uh, I want you to notice, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna watch this unfold, but verse eight I want you to notice, this is a little, just kind of fun, little like textual insight for you. Notice that it's not the Garden of Eden, it's the Garden in Eden. That'll kind of blow your mind here for a moment. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. So it's interesting, there's a land called Eden. And inside of Eden is a garden. And the garden is the location where God placed Adam. And the garden somehow is in the east side of this location called Edom. And there he put the man whom he had made or formed. And verses 10 to 14 may sound kind of weird to you, but um, what's happening is that um, Moses is kind of giving the Israelites this idea of where the location of some of this stuff was, um, even though it has been long gone by the flood and a million other realities. But um, what's happening here is that he's going to just show a little bit of the beauty of the, of the land that God has made. And again, a, a subsection of this land is Eden. It said a river flowed out of, out of Eden to water the garden. So Eden had a river in the uh, the river flowed out of Eden. It watered this garden. And there, the river at Eden, it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Now, anybody know where Havilah is? Good, I don't either. Uh, this is a little bit of a mystery, but the point here is that it's beautiful and it's awesome. And the gold of that land is good and delium and onyx stones are there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon. And it is the one that flowed around the whole land of 